You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. I am so glad you're here, even though I don't know. I don't know how long you're going to stay. Some of you may not stay very long on this episode, and that's okay. I got to tell you, this episode is... It's maybe not for everybody, although I think it's really interesting stuff, but it may not be for everybody. First of all, it's just me. John's not here. I got no guest. This is just for me. And I'm making this episode kind of, I don't know, like a, I feel like Fred Rogers right now because I, I was reading about Mr. Rogers. And at some point when he was making his show, he realized that if he made it a certain way, the episodes would still be relevant 10 years, 20 years down the line. And he was like, look, I'm not going to live forever. I'm going to make a certain number of these shows and they're just going to, they're just going to be evergreen. And I think when we started out on this humanize me thing, I was thinking we were more like a, a weekly or monthly kind of magazine. You know, that, that it was, we would hit current stuff, that we would talk about what was happening. And sometimes in the intros, we do talk about what's happening. I talk about what's happening. But, but I've, I've learned over the years that when new people come to the podcast, oftentimes they go all the way back and they listen to all the old episodes. Got a wonderful letter from a guy who said, listen, I found your podcast about six months ago. And he said, I've just now caught up. I've listened to everything. And I, re I look back at those episodes and some of them I go like, ah, they're, they're dated. But some of them, the conversations are really still as, as relevant or as valuable to somebody as they were when we first made them. And, and so lately I've started thinking about, well, what are some things that are important to talk about? Like I'm, I'm thinking about our audience. I'm thinking about especially the kind of people who just discover the show. And so many times those people are, they fall into sort of two categories. Either they are recently deconverted Christians. Lots of those. Lots of people who find us through various channels and they're like, I'm just coming out of the faith or I'm in the process of deconstructing or deconverting or whatever they're calling it at the time. And they're, they're trying to figure out how to make sense of life on the other side of supernatural belief systems and outside of a church structure that they've grown up in. And a lot of times they're coping with a lot of pain from family issues or other kinds of entanglements that, with, with people that are still believing and they're having a hard time dialoguing. So like, you, you know who those people are. Heck, many of you are those people. I'm those people. And then the other people that sometimes are very loyal to the show are people that have never believed in anything. They're the, 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 and they've just been living their lives and they've sort of sensed that there must be more. There must be more to life than what I'm experiencing. And, and, and frankly, those are the kind of people that as an evangelical Christian evangelist, I used to preach to. 
And I would sort of say to them, there is more, you know, come to Jesus and you'll find meaning and purpose and, and, and you'll live for love and you'll be part of a movement that's transforming the world for the better. And even if the supernatural stuff was hard for people to deal with, they would be attracted to the idea of joining a community that was all about promoting loving relationships and creating space for people to thrive. And of course, what I've come to realize is, is that you don't need a supernatural God belief to make that work. You just need, you just need some basic science and common sense to figure out that love is a, a really great, perhaps the greatest way of life the most evolutionarily adaptive, the most human, if you will. And so a lot of times people, they discover Humanize Me, the podcast, and they go like, hey, this is a conversation I've been looking for. I've been trying to figure out how to make my life more meaningful, make my relationships richer and fuller, live in such a way that when I die, I feel like I invested my life while I made the most of this life. So, all right. So I'm thinking about our audience and I'm thinking in particular about the deconverts today. And that's why some of you may wanna, you may, you, may, you may drop out of this and that's okay. Because the reason I'm making this episode is because I just, I keep encountering young couples who have recently deconverted. And there's a surprisingly common phenomenon, phenomenon among those couples. And it's, it's not only surprisingly common, it's extraordinarily painful for a lot of them. And that is they start experimenting with open marriage and they get in over their heads. And by the time they reach out to me, they're in, in deep distress because a lot of times these are people that really love each other. A lot of times they're people that have young kids and they're raising families and they're, they're deeply committed to these things. And they got into the open marriage thing because they thought it would enhance their marriage. And then they find themselves swimming in deep water and they're like, oh, I'm feeling things I didn't think I would feel. And we, we thought we had this under control and now it's out of control. and We don't know what's happening and our marriage is at risk. And I end up having a lot of these conversations. And I just thought, you know, at some point I ought to put something out there in a kind of prophylactic way, something meant to when people are in the process of talking about it, because a lot of times what happens is, is people don't reach out to talk about it until they're in trouble. It, it's an in, internal conversation that they're having and then they start experimenting. And of course the people they're exper experimenting with are very positive about it. And they don't actually get any kind of outside perspective until they run into trouble. And a lot of times, I don't want to say it's too late, but a lot of, it's too late to avoid a lot of pain and a lot of up till four in the morning conversations full of insecurity and sadness. And so I want to have this conversation, uh, conversation. I want to do this monologue. I want to put out there the kind of stuff that comes up in these conversations I have with these couples in the hopes that it'll be helpful to somebody. To, to, and in the knowledge that like people will, people will keep running into these issues. And, and it kind of makes sense. You know, people say like, isn't that weird that what is it about deconverting from Christianity that makes everybody all sexy, that makes everybody all horny and they all want to check things out. But if you think about it, it really makes sense because sexuality if, is, is kind of the focal point, one of the main focal points of religious repression. 
Like if you grow up in a conservative Christian and evangelical Christian world, one of the big things that they hammer, especially as a young person growing up in the youth groups and things like that, is this sexual purity culture and sexuality. You know, you read through the Bible and so much of it is like, it's about putting strictures on people's sexual expression, particularly women, I might add. And, and so a lot of times when these couples come out of this, th- th- these are couples that really love each other. They're, 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 sometimes the reason they've left Christianity is because they, they noticed all the patriarchal stuff and, and the kind of the way it represses women and that uncomfortable for them. And so all of a sudden it makes sense that, this, that the sexual straitjacket don't have sex before you get married. Don't even think about sex. Once you do get married, you can only think about this one person. If you even are attracted to another woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. Um, all of this, you know, it, it, we don't just want to control what you do. We want to control what you think. Masturbation is always wrong. It's a big problem. We don't even say that word. All of that stuff. It's such a focal point in evangelical Christianity and such a, an area of guilt. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. You, know, you, you, you take horny teenagers who like developmentally, naturally, all they're thinking about is sex and all they want to do is have sex and, and sort of connect and figure out and experiment and figure out how it all works. And you go like, oh, if you're thinking that way, you need Jesus. And, and it creates this incredible urgency to people's spirituality and a sense of their unworthiness and their sense of their need for grace. So in some sense, it makes sense. If you come out of that system, one of the first things you're going to look at and go like, hey, you know what? That was all invented. That, that was all invented. Maybe... Maybe these rules don't make sense. Like who, who made up these rules? These were meant to control us. These were meant to drive us into a sense of, of neediness before God. So if, that, if all that stuff isn't true, if there is no God, then what about these rules? And a lot of times around that time, um, people start reading, you know, Sex at Dawn, or they read Esther Perel. They see a TED Talk, Mating in Captivity. And... And there's a lot of excitement about, they start reading the science and they go like, wait a second, we're not, we're not hardwired for monogamy, at least the sexual part of ourselves isn't. As a matter of fact, sexually, what's really sexually exciting is variety and novelty and newness. And, and they go like, hey, maybe there's a way that we can get at that. I mean, it's a very sexy idea. Hey. You know, I love you. You love me. You know, maybe it would be exciting. Maybe, you know, some people are turned on by watching other people have sex. Maybe I'd like to watch you. Maybe you'd like to watch me. Maybe it would just be fun to try some variety and we would learn some new things that we could bring back. I mean, we, we, we could do that, right? And I, wanna, I, wanna, I just want to start the conversation by saying this. They're completely right. Monogamy is a human invention or not a human invention monogamy because it happens in other species too it's it's an evolutionary adaptation and it's not the only way that living creatures or even that human beings have organized their sexuality there are a lot of different ways to organize our sexuality and organize our reproduction and organize a society and so you know when they say like it's invented you're like yeah it is invented everything's invented you know, driving on the right side of the road is invented, as you will learn if you go to England. Um, 
So the first thing I want to say about it is, is that like they're right. And, and by the way, it is sexy. And the idea, uh, you know, you're laying in bed with this person you've been with and you both were raised to like repress your sexuality and never, and all of a sudden you're like, yeah, I could think about somebody else. Hey, I find other people attractive. Hey, it wouldn't, you know, and you're like, it's super sexy conversation. It is not, to my mind, immoral. Like there's nothing unnatural or intrinsically hurtful about the idea of open marriage or polyamory or or playfulness in your sexual life like there's i, I don't think there's anything immoral or even not, or even unhealthy about that conversation and even about some of that behavior i mean when i read esther perel and she talks about sort of especially in couples that, that have been together for a long time and the, the spark of sexuality is waning that there are ways of of re, of of creating distance between yourselves by by show by showing interest in other people and then coming back together you know and 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 kind of you know playing with jealousy as a way of 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 creating opportunities to reconnect and there's a lot to be said for that all I'm saying is it's a, it's a little bit like those fen-fen diets back in the 80s or early 90s. People started taking these appetite suppressants and the, these, kind of, these kind of pills. And what they found was it was amazing for losing weight. And for some reason, the FDA approved them all so fast. And everyone was like, this is amazing. We're all losing so much weight. And then what they found was is that like 9, 10, you know, 18 months in, all these people that were using fen-fen were like having heart attacks. <laughs> and, and we're having all kinds of other health complications. And they're like, oh, like it works great at the beginning, but then like, it's not really sustainable. Um, and the, the problem is that the dangers didn't show up until people were already pretty far in. And I would say that that's been my experience with deconverting Christians, experimenting with open marriages, is that a lot of times, by the time they realize the deeper factors that need to be considered, they're already pretty far in and sometimes it's pretty painful to do that reconsideration. So I wanna just say a few things. And the first thing is like, I think Esther Perel and the, the, the Sex at Dawn guy whose name is escaping right now, which John Wright will be so upset with because he loves that guy so much. And I do too. I mean, I've, that guy's a great podcast. He's a really interesting dude. But like when they say monogamy isn't natural, there's some sense in which that's right. But on another level, like, what is natural? What does natural even mean in a world of human beings? Like, you know, like, are electric cars natural? And you're like, oh, no, obviously not. Like, you know, are, are, are cities natural? Is a beaver dam natural? Oh, wait, because that's also a built structure created by a being that is manipulating its environment to create more comfort and safety for itself and its young. And you're like, well, a beaver dam is natural. Why? It doesn't just... It just doesn't emerge. You go like, wait, is a flower natural? Oh, that's evolved too. What about a bird's nest? Agriculture. An iPhone. If we're part of nature, if we're part of the universe and our evolution is part of the universe, then the, then the tools that we create are also on some level natural. So what I would say about monogamy is monogamy evolved with us as a strategy for organizing loyalties and for nurturing children and for managing risks, I would say, especially as you get older. That people are like, hey, one way that you can sort of 
organize things is monogamy. It's, again, it's not the only way. There are other societies that do things differently. But monogamy, and in particular, the kind of monogamy that a lot of folks are aiming for right now, which is what I would call kind of co-equal monogamy, where the ideal is considered to be that the partners are equally valued and that they equally value each other. Um, because of course, like if, if you don't care about equality, then you can go like, well, one dude can have like six wives and you know, they don't have the same rights that he has. They, they have to be loyal to him, but he can't. And you go like, well, I've heard of that. And you go, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of different ways to organize it. But the kind of, so what I would say is like, yeah, it's monogamy is invented, but it's invented and it's kind of been a very popular adaptation, especially in the Western world. And so now when you look around, like the people listening to this podcast, we live in a world that is largely designed around monogamy where houses are built to contain nuclear families, where legal structures are invented, things like marriage. Like this is a way where inheritances are handled this way. Children are nurtured in this context. And so if you are the biological parents of a, of a child, either the, either the father or the mother, you have certain legal rights, that child, that like, uh, somebody else living in your house, even, even your, your mother or your grandmother or an aunt or an uncle just don't have. I mean, it's just the way we've organized ourselves. At some point, my, Marty and I, we're raising our kids and Roman's playing football and Miranda's in, in her freshman year of college and not like playing high school football. And Miranda's in her, her freshman year of college at St. Olaf and she's not really digging the culture there. And Marty and I are laying in bed and we're talking hours about these kids and what we should do about the coach and what, what advice we're giving to Roman. What did Roman say today when he came home? And, oh, I heard talk to Miranda on the phone and this is what's going on. And, and the truth that matters is we're laying there. I'm very cognizant of the fact that nobody else would be as interested in talk. I, I mean, I, these are the most important questions in my life at this moment. And there's only one other human being on the planet that is, that is equally interested. Miranda's daughter, oh, I can watch the same video of her singing the theme song from Frozen 50 times in a row. And Marty walks in the room and she's like, you watching that video? Yeah. She's like, oh, move over. It's a thing that only we have in common. And so we tell ourselves before we're going out to dinner, listen, remember, don't talk about Maya. Two minute maximum, because otherwise we'll lose all our friends. There's this sense in which we the, the, the thing that we have in common is not just that we love these people, but that, that, that they have our ultimate loyalty, that, that they trump everything for us. So, so in our society, we sort of organize the loyalties around the biological realities. And that's, that's one way of doing it. It's, it's, it's our solution. It's not a perfect solution, I want to say. And that's where we get back to the open marriage thing. One of the things that Esther Perel says in her book, um, mating in captivity, she points out, is that marriages evolved in a village mentality where the marriage wasn't expected to carry all the weight, where you, were, where you were living around your family and your spouse was living around their family. So in a sense, there were a lot of other intimate connections. So that person didn't need to be your best friend. Your best friend was still living next door. And that person didn't need to be your your working partner, you, you could work with other people. They, they didn't need to be your, the, your, your exercise buddy. 
They didn't need to be your intellectual sparring partner. I mean, because you were growing up in a community where all those things were available to you. And you say like, and then, but they also needed to be your lover for 50 years. You needed to maintain an exciting, sexy marriage. No, you didn't. You'd raise your kids and then you'd die. But she's like, now in our modern society, people live a lot longer and they move around a lot. And so in the end, a lot of times a married couple moves to a new city and, and that person, you're, you're supposed to be my best friend, my, my business partner, my workmate, my co-parent, my lover, counselor. My, and it's just, she's like, it's just too much pressure on that relationship. And then she says, and then people live so long that now a marriage is supposed to last 40, 50 years. And, and now you've got Viagra and you've got estrogen replacement and hormone therapy. and those, So people's sexual abilities, their, their sexual connection lives on longer too. And they're supposed to maintain like a sexual connection with somebody over 50 years. And she, she, and as she rightly points out, sex is a thing that sort of thrives on novelty. And, and, and security is a wonderful value, but she's like, security, you know, where you go like, this person is mine and I can count on them and they will never leave me. And sexual desire, which is this idea of like, ooh, I wonder how that person's feeling about me. I want them. I want to, I want to get them. Well, she's like, how can you desire what you already have and what you know you can never lose? And so sexual desire oftentimes is like, is, is, the enemy of security and security is the enemy of so sexual desire. And so she's like, look, if you're going to be in a long-term relationship and you want there to be sex in that relationship, you're going to have to do some work to manage that. And that's where she starts to talk about like, hey, you know, things, people get older, you know, sometimes people, they, they, they use play, they use fantasy, they dress up, they pretend to be different people. You know, you ask anybody who's in a long-term marriage where there's still sex going on, in a meaningful way. And they'll say, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you know, we try different things. We, we switch things up. We pretend, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes, you know, Esther Perel's like, sometimes you, you have to create some distance. And so sometimes people will pretend that they're interested in somebody else, or they'll actually express interest in another person and, and rile up the other person's natural jealousy instinct and going like, wait, I think this person's slipping away from me a little bit. And it's all under control. It's like a roller coaster ride. Like the danger is faked but it's faked to an effect because they want that emotional payoff of, oh no, come back here, you're mine. And people get off on that. I, all of these things make perfect sense to me. And so when people recognize that, no, that the excitement of novelty is natural, even as the desire for security is natural, and they start to try to make that work, it leads you right back to this idea of like, well, the ultimate way to make that work would be open marriage. Like, look, we'll be married and I'm totally committed to you, but like you get a free pass and I get a free pass and then we come back and talk about it. Won't that be exciting? Or, hey, let's go to a swingers club together and we'll sort of experiment together and it'll be good for our relationship. And again, I got no moral problem with that. I just got to tell you that that kind of playfulness, that kind of experimentation, that is the black diamond slope of intimate communication.
you know what I mean? Like in, 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 in skiing, like you start out on the bunny hill and then you move up and there are these other things. And the black diamond, that's for the expert skiers. That's for the people that really know what they're doing. And what I would say is that a lot of times when people get to that, you know, when, when people, those things can be really rewarding for couples who have really secure connections and who have really good communication with each other and have learned to talk about sex and have worked through some problems and all of that stuff. But- that's where you tend to run into problems with these new AD converting couples. Because if there's one thing you learn in the process of deconverting from Christianity, it's how to play your cards close to the vest. Every deconverting Christian I know will tell me that the questions and the doubts and all that stuff, that those started years before they expressed them to anyone, including themselves before they would even admit to themselves that they were op- that they were beginning to question whether or not God was real. The, 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 because the, the, there was so much at stake and there was so much judgment that would come down and they were fearful of being rejected by people. And so deconverting Christians, newly deconverted Christians are experts at withholding, <laughs> at making the other person Show their cards first before you show yours. And so all the things that we, all the survival skills that we develop in the process of working our way out of a faith orientation, those are all the things that make us uniquely unsuited to be good at open marriage. And so what happens is, is that these couples, they start playing around with this stuff and then they find that that feelings start to emerge, jealousy, insecurity. Um, excitement, uh, self doubt. And, and they're not very good at communicating. The other thing that emerges is very quickly in open marriage, if you read about it very quickly in that kind of stuff. And Esther Perel is a, a great champion of this, is, is that marriage is a contract or a couple is a contract. And so you've got to have very strict rules. Like if we're going to do this, like we only one time with any one person, sometimes is some people's rule. Like we, we'll, we'll go do this or we'll only do it when we're together. We never, we never play. We never fool around when we're not together because that would breed a kind of an ins- a jealousy or an insecurity that we don't want to mess with. Or we'll only do it with a person once, or we have no contact with somebody after we've had sex with them because we're worried about getting too entangled. There are all kinds of rules to be able to, or it can be oral sex, but it can't be penetration, or it can be penetration, but it can't be oral, or like, I'm okay with you flirting with a guy in a bar, but I don't want you going home with them. Or we never do it at our house. We only do it when we're out of town. Like there are all kinds of rules that people come up with in these things to protect themselves. And you go like, well, newly deconverted Christians, they would embrace that whole putting yourself under rules and embracing a a tight system of behavioral control. And you're like, nope, they don't. we We just shook off those shackles. And so a lot of times people are like, we don't need those kind of rules. And in fact, those kind of rules are attempts to control us. And we're, I don't want to be controlled by you and I don't want you to control me. And that's what we just are trying to get away from. And that's where they run into trouble. Because they start out and it's all about sex. 
And, 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 and again, in the beginning, it's not just that it's fun to have sex or it's exciting to fool around with other people. The, the couples come back and they always tell me the same thing. Like, oh my gosh, this is doing wonders for our sex life. We are so hot for each other. Like we're talking about sex a lot more. We're texting and we're sending messages. And I'm so, oh, the thought of her with somebody else turns me on and the sight of him with somebody else turns me on. And like, it all makes sense. I mean, and, and there are tropes about that in pornography and all that stuff. But you got to remember, just like with the size thing, what you see in pornography is not necessarily, like you don't want to learn your physics from a Marvel comic movie and you don't want to learn your sexual mores and, and, and norms from pornography because that's not, those people are actors. Even in the fake, even in the, this is real, like, like real life couples, these people are acting. Same way you act on your Facebook page. You present yourself and they present themselves like, isn't it hot? And it is hot to a point. But what happens is, in my experience of talking with lots and lots of couples who have run into this stuff, is that invariably, somebody wants a connection. Somebody likes somebody. Somebody meets somebody. And what, what is exciting to them is not just the, the physical connection. It's the sense of being desired by somebody who is desirable. And as soon as somebody starts to connect, somebody else starts to get jealous. And then you're into this whole game of emotional chicken. Where are you going to tell me I can't do this? Because what are you, are you jealous? Manage your jealousy. It's, it's weak. Like you don't want to be weak. Or somebody, somebody gets some action and somebody else is not getting some action. Somebody finds that they're more into it and somebody else is more insecure about it. And when somebody wants to make a connection, then you get to, it's, it suddenly shifts to like, hey, maybe, maybe we're not talking about just fooling around here. Maybe, maybe, we, could ha maybe we could love more than one person. You know, it, it, it turns into a discussion of polyamory. And... Uh, and boy, you want to talk about the black diamond. Polyamory, you know, is this idea that you, that, that you can love, you can be connected. You could have a husband over here and a boyfriend over there or a wife over here and three girlfriends over there. And, and that you can be happily, sustainably in love with more than one person at a time. Which in a sense is a way of saying like, you can be loyal to more than one partner or maybe loyal to more than one family. And so, you know, people are like, oh, they're a cool couple and we're a cool couple. What if we all were sort of, we all loved each other and we raised our kids together and, you know, and, and the kids would have more adults in their lives and, and we would have more people that love us. And it, it sounds so ideal. And again, like I got no judgment on this. Some people can easily handle their partner having sex with other people. Some people like to watch their partner have sex with other people. I believe all that. I, I, I get all that. But very few people can handle seeing the person that they love snuggle with somebody else or hold hands with somebody else or giggle at inside jokes with somebody else or be enamored with somebody else or say, I've never been able to talk to somebody the way I talk to this other person that I'm having sex with. And again, don't get me wrong. Like, I know my wife is able to talk to certain people. Her mother was one. Her tight buddies, Jill and Holly. 
right? Like my daughter, like there are conversations she can have with those people. There's a level of understanding that she gets from those people that she can't get from me. A lot of us can handle our significant other having intimate friendships with other people. And some of us can handle having our intimate partner having sex with other people, but almost none of us can handle having our, part, having our intimate partner have sex with somebody with whom they are intimate. Like then, then you're into my territory. Then I get jealous. And of course the polyamory people come to me and go like, hey, jealousy is a weakness. Like you need to overcome that. That's something to be put away. And what I wanna say, and this is maybe the crux of this podcast, is that jealousy is not a weakness in a marriage or in a couple. Jealousy is an evolved instinct telling you that your family and or your future is at risk. If you were counting on getting old with somebody, if you were counting on them taking care of you if you got cancer, just as you would take care of them if they got cancer or Alzheimer's, if you were counting on them still loving you even when you couldn't have sex anymore, or that you were gonna still love them even if they couldn't have sex anymore. If you were counting on them, on somebody that was gonna sit up with you and look at and, and wanna watch stupid videos of your granddaughter 50 times, that's at risk when that person starts having sex with somebody that they are also hugely attracted to and they have desire for and they feel connected to and intimate with. And you say, like, who am I to say no if, they, if that person can provide something that I can't? And my attitude is like, hey, lots of people provide stuff that I can't. I don't mind them providing something that I can't as long as I have this one thing that, that, that only I get to provide. It's sort of like back in the village where like, yeah, your wife, maybe she was, maybe she was more comfortable with her girlfriends than with you. And maybe she, she, and maybe she could have better conversations with, you know, her, her college professor than you or the old man in the village who had read all the books or the old woman in the village that knew all the wisdom. It didn't matter because there was this one thing. She was only going to have kids with you and, and your kids would be this thing that you would have in common. And, and, and financially, you would be loyal to her and she would be loyal to you. Your fortunes were literally married together. And the problem with this polyamory thing is it, makes, it, it, is it tells the big lie that you can have that kind of ultimate loyalty to more than one person or, 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 and, and, that like, and, that, and that your kids won't be damaged by it. And the truth of the matter is, is if you form a deep loyalty to this person and then your kid has a disease and you got to move to Los Angeles because that's the only place where they treat that disease. And you're like, I'm leaving. And this person's like, but I'm here and my kids are here. And you go like, and you go like what are you going to do? And you go like, if you go, you rip yourselves up. And if you stay, you rip something up. At some point when that jealousy kicks in, what these young couples will tell me is, is that one of them will say, I can't handle this. I can't handle it. But they're afraid to say out loud that they can't handle it because they, and, and, and what they say is it's unfair. Who am I to take, she cares about this person. Who am I to take that away from her? And what I would say when somebody says it's unfair, is like, like, you're right, it is unfair. It's hugely unfair to allow somebody to develop a bond that is unsustainable. A bond, a bond that wants to be sustained that is unsustainable. But like, and so like what I would say is the unfairness is not raising the flag and saying, I can't handle this. I, I, need, you to, I need you to bail out. The unfairness was letting that person make that bond in the first place, which is by the way, where all those Esther Perel rules come in and all those, all those like, you gotta have a lot of guardrails around this thing and you gotta keep it tightly 
tightly connected because it's not about the morality of it. It's about the practicality of it. And of course, at the point at which they raise the flag and say unfair, it's usually exactly the wrong point to raise the flag because of that person, the person, the other, the partner is, is knee deep in new relationship energy, which as any social scientist will tell you, anybody that has an fMRI machine will tell you is when you are in the midst of new relationship energy, when you are, and you have a new sexual partner, there's a level of excitement and energy and it, that's an, it, it, it's, it's an addictive drug. It, it reads on your brain like a form of insanity. You have no judgment. It's, it's, not, it's not happening in that prefrontal cortex where your judgment is. It's somewhere deep in your amygdala. Nobody's rational in that situation. Nobody's rational when they're newly in love. So you say to this person, hey, this is, I don't think this is in the best interest. And they're like, yes, it is. It'll work. I can make it work. Like, it's, you, you, don't take this away from me. And boy, that puts a lot of pressure on a relationship. And that's when these people tend to call me and they're up till four in the morning and three in the morning. And, they're, and even that's kind of sexy, this kind of like, are we going to make it or not? And, and so, so they'll be like, yeah, this is bad, but I, I kind of don't want to give it up because like the sex is amazing. And I go like, yeah, but how's it playing on your, on your sense of security? How's it playing on your kids? How's it playing at work? And they're like, yeah, it's not sustainable. And don't worry, it's not sustainable. It won't sustain. I mean, that's the reason that we get into these situations in the first place is because like no matter how much you love a person, at some point, the sexual energy in a relationship wanes. Now, the, the good news is it can come back. Like, you know, you talk to any long-term couple and they'll be like, oh yeah, there are times when we're really hot for each other and we're doing it all the time. And there are times when we're in these big troughs and, you know, you learn to manage that stuff, but there's no way you can sustain it. New relationship energy or sexual frenzies don't, don't last forever. I mean, we, we, we wouldn't be able to, wouldn't be able to get anything done if they did. So I always tell those people the same thing I'm going to tell you right now. And by the way, I'm, I'm hoping that everybody else has left by now. Because this is where I get really directive. And so like, if you're the partner who's feeling the jealousy, you, you don't want to make it moral. You don't want to say that person is doing something wrong. Because they're, what they're doing is natural. And, and, and it's not against any... There's, there's no, there's no objective morality they're violating. And you don't want to, and you, and, and, and my advice to you is like, you don't want to put your foot down and say, you give this up or I'll do this or I'll do that, or I'll leave you, or I'll take the kids or I'll uh, out you, or I'll do like, you know, none of that, none of that coercive stuff. It's not, they're not breaking a rule and you shouldn't punish them anyway. I say, you got to own it. You got to confess I can't handle this. This is tearing me up. This is hurting me. You have to, you have to raise the, you want to raise the flag? Don't let it be a red flag. Let it be a white flag. I surrender. I can't handle this. This is tearing me up. I'm really sorry. And then you got to ask. I'm asking you to sacrifice your desire for my security. I, I, I'm too insecure for this. I'm too weak for this. I don't think of this as a weakness. I, I, I just think of it as a, as a survival instinct. But, but if you want to call it a weakness, call it a weakness. I can't handle it. It doesn't work for me. You know, I think you can be honest. I, I don't think our marriage will survive. One of us falling in love with another person and I sense that happening and I'm, I'm terrified by it. And, and the person will say, well, I'll, they'll give you 57 reasons why it will work. And you say like, look, I got to be honest with you. Like, I think you're in new relationship energy. And 
I, I respect it, but I, I don't think it's rational. And even if it is, I, I can't handle it. You just, you just got to tap out and hope that that person seeing your pain wants to respect it. And you're like, but they're going to resent me. Yes, they are going to resent you in the short run. They're going to resent you. They're going to be furious with you. Same way a heroin addict is furious with you if you take away their fix. They're going to be furious with you. And the, you know, the, the real question is, six months from now, when you're, you, things have settled down, are they still furious with you? Or are they like, you know what? Looking back at that, that was crazy. That was crazy. I, I was putting a lot of things that I really value at risk. Putting our kids at risk. Putting our future at risk. Putting my own security at risk. Again, I, I, I don't want to come off as uh, moralistic and I don't want to come off as, as uh, what's the word? Didactic. or I, I don't know what the word is, but the word is where you think that like there's one answer that fits everyone. I do not think one answer fits everyone. And like you, you say to me like, do you think polyamory could never work? No, no. I mean, I've, I've seen some, you know, I've seen some situations where, I don't know, like two couples are friends and one of the people dies and... The, the, you know, somebody always, you know, there was always some, some chemistry between one of them or maybe sometimes between both of them. And the one goes like, I'm lonely. And the other one's like, yeah, come over here. And you go like, yeah, but we're going to be, and it's all right. I don't mind if you like, I've, I, 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 I can't sleep with her every night everywhere. I can't sleep with them every night anyway. So like, sure, we'll just switch off. And I've seen that work. But again, like that's black diamond. These are people that know each other. They're secure in themselves. They that aren't don't have kids in the house. That are unsecure. That that, that who, 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 who they're they're needing to deal with. And and usually in those situations, there's a clear like this is the dyad. And if somebody gets cancer, this is where the money goes. And this person is they're a house guest. They're, this is the primary. This is the secondary. You know, I, I've seen this stuff happen when. Somebody gets really sick and some and, and, and one partner's nursing another partner and somebody else comes around and and, the, and sometimes the, the partner who's sick says, Look, I don't expect you to to put away your 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 sexual identity completely. So I'm like, yeah, go ahead. I you know, I can't I'm not I, I, I this is not gonna be a part of my life anymore. So sure, let's bring this person in and we'll we'll we'll, we'll, we'll come up with an arrangement. But again, these these are so like, what, what, I guess what I'm saying is like, I don't have any hard and fast rules here. This has been general advice. And you might say, wow, this is so specific. Like really, are there three people in our podcast audience that are dealing with the stuff? And I'm going to tell you like, there are way more than three. And there will be more coming. This is, this is a renewable resource here. The, 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 the need of young couples coming out of Christianity to make sense of their sexual lives and I'm trying to like what I'm trying to do here is just is just put out like the practical side of this stuff up front, rather than having it be anything about more. I like, you know, I got I got no issue. You know, my my advice is like, look, if you're in a monogamous relationship, then you probably shouldn't have sex with people that you're friends with, and you probably shouldn't become friends with people that you're having other people that you're having sex with. You go, like, well, you're saying it could be okay to have sex with other people? Like, yeah, I got no I got no rules. And you're saying it's okay to be like totally intimate friends with people outside of, yeah. I mean, if, if I'm a woman, I'm going to, I'm going to probably think it would be better to do that with women or gay men. And if I'm a man, I'm thinking, you know, the same thing because just because 
intimacy leads to intimacy. People become, that's one of the things you, you tell people when they're dating is like, sometimes people want to, they, they, they won't date somebody because they're not physically turned on by them. And I'm like, listen, if you like a lot of other things about them, you might want to go out with them a couple of times. It's amazing how much more attractive somebody becomes once you like them. And it, once they like you, like, boy, I'll tell you, anybody that finds me sexually attractive immediately becomes hot to me. You think I'm good? All right, then you're, boy, I had not noticed your eyes. You know, what happens is when somebody really is attractive to us, we stop looking for the flaw that keep them from being attractive to us. And we start looking for is the thing about them that makes them sexually attractive. And so, and, and this is a, a really beautiful thing in a, in, in a long-term relationship is, is that the funny thing is, is when, when Marty and I were younger and our bodies were objectively better, we didn't have nearly as much fun with them. We were worried about what was wrong with them. We were worried about their flaws. You, you, you get to our age and, and, and they're falling apart in all different places. And you're like, yeah, but that ankle, that's, that's a good looking ankle over there. And she's like, yeah, I, I still like your ear. You know, and these are metaphors, of course. But what I'm saying is you start looking for the thing that is attractive. And that's a really great human quality is that we are able to adapt our tastes and, and to, sort of, to sort of end up desiring what we have. It's kind of a bias that if we own something, all of a sudden it seems more valuable to us. And that's, that's a beautiful quality. It's, it's one of the things that really helps us. But it's, it's one of the reasons why you want to be careful who you become intimate with, in, in emotionally or intellectually intimate with, because like strangely enough, you're like, ah, he would never interest me. She would never interest me. And you're like, yeah, you'd be surprised. Do I seem like your grandmother here? Do I sound like your old uncle Bart? Hey, here's another thing you should be thinking about. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And like I said, probably I don't need to apologize because if this wasn't your cup of tea, you left a long time ago. I'm sure there's some poly people out there and some open marriage people out there that are going to say, "Let the open marriage saved our marriage. And, and, and I've seen it save marriages. Do not get me wrong. I don't have a one size fits all here. This is general advice especially for the ones just coming out. Like I'm going like, even if it works, it's like black diamond slopes are awesome if you're a good skier. And all I'm saying is a lot of times when you're just coming out of Christianity and you haven't yet found your new friends and you haven't yet got your feet and you haven't yet figured out how to organize your spirituality or, or whatever you want to call that part of yourself that still wants loving relationships and still wants to make the world a better place and still wants to die feeling like your life amounted to something meaningful. Like, until you figure all that stuff out, you're not a good enough skier to, play, to, 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 to ski this thing. All right. Here's the problem. When John Wright is not on the show as my co-host, there is no one to stop me. And I know somebody needs to stop me. So I'm going to stop myself. I'm going to say this is it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of this community. I hope this is helpful to somebody. And uh, I will see you next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at humanize me pod on Twitter and humanize me podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092.
424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life.